One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Particularly, you know, Black women with all of the stereotypes that we carry around, you know, for example, the strong Black woman or the angry Black woman, the ways in which we're not given permission by the world to fully feel what we're feeling, that that grief can turn into a sort of madness. And I wanted to reject, you know, those stereotypes and to allow myself to be, you know, fully human. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. This episode of Thresholds is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the world. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. And each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Something I particularly love about MUBI is the way that they create collections of films, like highlights from past years of the Cannes Film Festival, or films that emphasize the history of French feminist filmmaking. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash thresholds. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash thresholds for a whole month of great cinema for free. Be sure to check what's streaming in your area. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. It took Nadia Owusu more than 10 years to write Aftershocks. Her memoir, which was published last year, and tells the story of a period of what she calls madness. 
Owusu grew up idolizing her father. Her mother had left them when she was very young, and her father became her whole world. So when he died, it threw her into years of grief, which culminated when her stepmother told her, many years later when she was 28, that her father's death was not from cancer, as Owusu had thought. The crisis this provoked in Owusu was not just a mental health crisis, it was also an existential crisis and a crisis of faith leading her to reevaluate not only what she knew of her father and her relationship with her father, but all the stories she had told herself and known about where she comes from, including the story of her mother's life. It's a beautiful, intricately woven book that looks madness and loss and inheritance straight in the face. Owusu came to talk about the process of living it and the process of writing it. Hope you enjoy. It was sort of a feeling in my body that something was changing and, and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that what was changing was sort of my understanding of my own story and the ways in which I had made sense of my life. And that, that, that understanding had been sort of challenged, um, like really directly. And that, that sort of the, the choice before me was that either I would insist on continuing to hold on to the story that I had long told myself, or I could be open to sort of reckoning with other possibilities for understanding my life. And I was very resistant to the reckoning with other possibilities. You know, I think that we all have sacred stories that we cling to. And it was really difficult for me to let go of mine. But that was the threshold that that immediately came to mind and was sort of... Um, is kind of at the heart of, of aftershocks as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, having, having read aftershocks, I can guess exactly what you're talking about, but, but would (laughs) you, uh, would you say more about what that sort of what that first story was and then the moment of, of it being challenged for you? Sure. So, um, so my mother left when I was two and, and I was raised by my father who was sort of, um, I had built up in my mind as sort of this deity in my life. Um, and, and he worked for a UN agency. So we moved to a different country every couple of years. And so I think among other things, the effect of sort of that transient childhood was that even more, I saw my father as home, um, and as sort of a guiding force. And in many ways, like a, a kind of, yeah, a de- like a God. Um, and, um, when I was 28, um, and my father died when I was, when I was young, when I was, um, 13, um, just a month before my first 14th birthday. And, and so in my story of my life and in sort of the way that I grieved, I kind of clung to, you know, that idea of him as a godlike figure um, who could have done no wrong. And when I was 28, my stepmother with whom I had a very kind of shaky relationship, um, and had, you know, since she married my father when I was, I think six or seven, I'm forgetting now, but, um, she came to New York and, um, we got into an argument and she told me that my father did not die of cancer as I had always believed, but that he had died of AIDS. And, in that story, there was a lot of sort of innuendo, you know, in terms of how he would have contracted AIDS if he had a life outside of the life that I knew him to have. Um, that sort of, yeah, caused me to question a lot of the stories that I had told myself. Um, and, 
and sort of really required me to kind of examine why I needed him to be a God as opposed to sort of to, to being a man who, um, you know, was a very good man. And like what I, what I came to was that, um, that in fact, in kind of building him up to be a God, I diminished him rather than, um, rather than sort of, uh, uh, doing good in our relationship, um, or doing good for our relationship that I diminished our relationship by insisting on, you know, perfection. And that was also something that I realized a standard as well that I sort of clung to for myself. And that made it really difficult for me to move through the world as well. And so, um, really kind of started to untangle where that came from. You were saying earlier that, that, that change or that, that shock to use the language you use in the book, um, started sort of as a feeling in your body in that conversation. How, what did that feel like? Well, I mean, I can remember we were at a Chinese restaurant at the time and I can remember it was just, it was, it was a tremors. It was, I, I felt like I was shaking and that the shaking sort of wouldn't stop. Um, and sort of, uh, I leapt out of my chair and actually had to get out of the restaurant. I had to keep moving and, um, was really restless. Um, so that, that's what it felt like in the body. Of course, at the time I didn't sort of connect, um, intellectually, like what the shaking meant. Um, but now when I look back at it, it was, you know, it was this kind of tension, um, and, and resistance that had become too much. That's the way that I see it now. What do you felt at stake with the idea that your, your father might have died of AIDS as opposed to cancer? Um, I mean, there were many things that for me that were at stake. The main thing being that I felt like my relationship with my father was the one thing that I could trust and count on in my life. You know, with my mother leaving, my father was my parent. He was the one who took care of me with all of our moves. You know, we moved every couple of times again. Like I felt like he was my home. I felt like I knew him and he knew me and that that connection was really strong. And that because I had that connection after I lost him, which, you know, was the beginning of a very difficult time in my life that I could at least return to that, to that knowledge that was sort of pure. Um, and that love, um, that I saw as sort of, um, that couldn't be questioned. Um, and so that really, I think was what was at stake. I think mixed up in that, of course, were some, uh, kind of ugly things that I needed to examine in myself ultimately, which is, you know, why is it, um, that dying of cancer was, you know, more noble, uh, let's say than dying of AIDS and their ugly stereotypes, you know, attached to that. And I really had to kind of ask myself, was that part of what my reaction was? Um, I think to, you know, my stepmothers and what, what that would mean about my father and sort of the choices that he made. And I think in my, the way that my stepmother sort of delivered the information, she was kind of insinuating that he had had affairs or that he had sort of a life in the darkness that was outside of what I knew about him. And so, um, yeah, causing me to question sort of who I understood him to be, but then also this story that I really clung to um, for comfort um, during really difficult times in my life. Yeah, it's so interesting because it that that 
that occurrence feels familiar or that, you know, in a sense, a lot of people go through the experience of realizing that there are, there's a whole world of things that they that are true about their parents that they never knew or that they were shielded from or that their parents kept private. Um, and I, people go through or have that, you know, have that shock at different points. And it sounds like this one was was particularly intense because because you couldn't ask him about it <laughs> because there was no there was sort of no recourse um with with that information or maybe what wasn't even information you know like it, it could did you ever find out if it was true I didn't um you know I I did have my father's death certificate and you know the cause of death on the certificate was cancer and I I do know for a fact that he had cancer you know I spent time in the hospital with him through my research, um, through chemotherapy. And, and, you know, I was with him during that time when he was having chemotherapy and radiation and surgery for a tumor in his head. So I do know for a fact that he had cancer, but through my research, I found that, you know, there are certain kinds of cancer that, um, are very common in people with HIV and that people with HIV, um, have a higher incidence of, of cancers. And so, you know, that opened the door of possibility that what she was saying could be true. But I also, you know, my relationship with my stepmother was such that I had reason to question whether what she was saying was true. Um, and, you know, I, I did ask a couple of people in my family who didn't know, didn't have any information and couldn't really give me any answers. But ultimately, I decided that it doesn't matter. Um, and so I kind of stopped asking and stopped looking because where I came to was that actually I don't need my father to be a God and that by honoring the fullness of his humanity, whether or not that particular story is true, um, there were certainly things about him and about his life that I didn't know. Like that, that as you're saying, is, is something that I think all of us have to come to terms with. Um, and I think it was particularly difficult for me to come to terms with it because I had built up sort of this faith um, around my story of him. But ultimately, and, and also because I realized, you know, the ways in which these kinds of biases and um, these kind of this, this ugly sort of shaming um, around HIV and AIDS um, was part of uh, my resistance to that story. And so that I actually needed to undo that in myself as well. Um, and to come to terms with, you know, we all kind of, um, we all drink harmful narratives. Um, they're in the groundwater. And so that was one that I had to realize that I had sort of internalized somehow and wanted to undo in myself. And yeah, so ultimately, I decided that I don't need to know the answer to that question. Yeah, I was um I was really captivated by how your book tells the story of this event that you know the the disclosure or the you know the conversation that you have with your stepmother and that the journey you take after that event is a kind of a a searching journey but it isn't really searching externally as if you know I can imagine another form of this book where the person goes to see if they can validate or disqualify the claim 
um, and sort of looks out in the world for some um, some answer to her questions. And the book that you wrote is about a story of a very, very internal journey. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, part of the reason for that is that I quickly realized how that story was um, entangled with so many other stories of my life that I had gone unexamined and that actually I needed to sort of take a closer look at all of those stories and how they fit together. Um, and that, that included sort of better understanding, you know, the reasons why my mother left, for example, um, which, you know, I had bits and pieces of that story. Um, but I didn't believe that I was going to get answers to that out in the world, um, necessarily, except to better understand sort of the context in which my mother, for example, was making decisions. Um, and so that's sort of where I started, um, as opposed to, I think, going out and interviewing people. Um, because, you know, I'd had many conversations about these stories with people in my family, with people in my life, and none of them had answers. So I, I didn't think that I was going to find that sort of answer. And I had a sense that the kind of answer I was looking for was a very different kind of answer, which is how do I live with this complexity and with this, the, the reality that there are some things that I might never know. You describe in the book that process as um, undergoing, you know, at its moments of crisis, undergoing a kind of madness. And you dedicate this book to mad black women everywhere, along with your father. Um, and I was curious about your decision to use that language, that language of madness to describe um, what you went through, particularly because that can be sometimes a, a freighted, a freighted term or a term that, you know, some people want to turn away from. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's exactly because it is a freighted term. And, you know, the reality is that I had been struggling for a long time. I'd, I'd, I'd been struggling since I was 14. It was very difficult for me to do very basic things in the world sometimes um, because of my grief, which sort of turned into um, depression. And I had a lot of anxiety. You know, I passed out from panic attacks on a fairly regular basis. And those were things that I hid from people because I felt a lot of shame about, you know, giving, giving that a name, um, calling it madness. And, um, you know, as I was examining some of these stories, what I realized is that actually it was that fear that, and that, and that shame that was sort of holding me hostage and that, that, that I could be more honest with myself about what I was going through and what I needed to, um, acknowledge in myself. And so that's why for me, it felt really important, um, to give it a name, um, and to not shy away from calling it madness because that is really how I experienced it. Um, and, um, and I also think that there are ways in which particularly, you know, black women, with all of the stereotypes that we carry around, you know, for example, the strong black woman or the angry black woman, the ways in which we're not, um, uh, we're not given permission by the world to fully feel what we're feeling, which, you know, 
there are so many reasons for us to be grieving um, a lot of the time and that that grief can turn into a sort of madness. And I wanted to reject, you know, those stereotypes and to allow myself to be, you know, fully human and to experience the, the, the kind of scope of emotions that, that I did experience and that denying them was actually doing me far more harm. Mm. Is that language you were articulating to yourself at the time or something you found afterward as you began working on this project? Though I guess maybe that's a, maybe that's a false question because it, it seems from the book that you were writing even during that period. Yeah. I mean, in the, so I was writing during that period and part of my journey was through the writing. Um, it was in very different forms than what appear in the book, although I did kind of pull directly from some of those notebooks in some places, but very early in that sort of journey, um, where I found myself sort of shut in my room and unsure whether I could go back out into the world, I was really clear. I understood that that I was having a breakdown. Like there was no question in my mind that that's what was happening. So I was using those kinds of terms with myself. Um, my impulse at the time was to shut myself off from the world and to just allow myself to have this breakdown and hope that I would make it out. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, that is how I understood it at the time. How, after you went through that period of kind of shutting yourself in your room and then coming back out and reentering the world, um, did you begin to reconstitute your story, either in writing, the writing you were doing at the time, or um, just for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the big shifts in terms of kind of moving back out into the world was that I had started to kind of consider a lot of the stories of my family um, and, you know, the ways in which my parents' choices, for example, in the most intimate ways sort of um, shaped my life. Um, but I had this sense coming out. Um, and I think particularly because, you know, I didn't grow up in my parents' cultures. I'm sort of what people call a third culture kid. So my father was born and raised in Ghana. Um, well, in what was then the Gold Coast. He was born in the last year before independence. Um, and my mother um, is Armenian American and her family came to the United States as refugees fleeing genocide um, in the Ottoman Empire. And those were stories, you know, the story of colonization of, in Ghana um, and the story of, or of the Ashanti Kingdom more specifically, which is the tribe that my father belonged to. Um, and, you know, the story of the Armenian genocide, those were stories that I sort of, of course, understood were part of the story of my families, but I didn't know them in, in a really kind of embodied sense. And I had never really thought about the ways in which those larger forces um, were carried in my parents' bodies and then were passed to me and carried in my body and um, sort of shaped who they were in the world and the choices that they made. And I had this sense that I wanted to come to more deeply understand those stories and, and specifically my family's experience of them. And so 
um, you know, the, where I started sort of in the room, in my room, sort of uh, during this period of madness, um, when I came out into the world, what I felt like my, my next step was or work that I needed to do was to kind of really grapple with and understand those stories and reckon with them and come to understand how they shaped my life and how they shaped my parents and how they shaped who we are. Um, and, and through those stories, ultimately what I came to find was, you know, a, a deeper sense of connection, um, to them, to my parents. Um, and in particular, in the case of my mother, like a growing empathy for her in terms of what she had gone through, um, as, as a young girl sort of raised by people who were still very much traumatized by what, what they had experienced. Um, and, and so that was sort of the, the, the work that I started to do once I kind of came out of that period of madness and, and that those stories ultimately are, are a big part of what Aftershocks is. Yeah, that was something I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, was the way that you formally weave many different time periods, many different voices and people stories through this kind of frame of this particular period in your life where you're this, this period of um, confrontation and with madness. Um, How did you, how did you think about the way you wanted all of those all of those stories to live together in the book? Yeah, I mean, because I, I think I'm, I was very lucky in that I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as a book at first. And I was really sort of writing for myself, um, writing myself toward deeper understanding, deeper connection, um, and ultimately love um, for the people and places that I belong to. And, and that was sort of my project. And that's what I felt like I really needed to do at the time down the line, when I did sort of get this idea that maybe I could take that raw material that I cre- created for myself and turn it into a book, then the question became sort of how do these stories sort of fit together? And I think it was really important to me to not, um, to not kind of oversimplify or try to turn it into a linear narrative because what was clear to me from just the way I instinctively wrote it and, um, was that, that this was that, that all of these stories fit together through the fact of my body and the fact of my existence. And that I actually can't tell as somebody with multiple cultures who grew up with multiple languages, who grew up moving all over the world, whose, you know, family come from these really different disparate histories that are really connected because they're connected in me that like that, that is my story. Um, and, and I recognized that that was, that, that was uh, going to be really complex and really difficult to sort of, um, turn into a linear narrative. Um, and so then, you know, the question about structure really became sort of what are the threads that do tie these together? And so one of them, of course, was like, um, was the fact of my body and, and how they, um, how they are tied together in me. The other one was that there was this story of, of a breakdown, you know, through which I began to make sense of all of these stories. And so then I asked myself, is there a linear thread there that can help guide people through, um, through these histories and kind of link them together? Um, and then the third was the kind of earthquake metaphor, 
which was something that I was doing very naturally because, um, there, uh, I have long kind of, um, lived inside of an earthquake metaphor in some ways, because the one time, like I have a really clear memory of my mother coming to visit, um, when I was seven and my family was living then in Rome and my mother came to visit on the same day as a massive earthquake destroyed a city in Armenia. And because my mother is Armenian American and I felt really disconnected from her and her showing up on that day and sort of in some ways kind of blowing my life up um, in that I was so used to her not being there and I didn't know how to make sense of her presence. And then she left again. And then that, that, that was on the same day as this massive earthquake in a place that her family are, you know, are connected to, but that I didn't know anything about those things sort of conflated in me. And I became really interested in earthquakes. And so I was sort of doing, I was using that metaphor a lot, even in the very early writing that I was doing to write myself out of this period of, of, of deep depression. Um, and so that became another sort of through line, um, that metaphor became, and sort of the phases of an earthquake became another through line. So that's how I thought about fitting them together. But I knew, you know, I knew that I couldn't turn this into a linear narrative. And also I'm, you know, I grew up, I was raised by the Ashanti side of my family for the most part. And time in the Ashanti culture is not linear. Um, and, you know, the past is present. You know, we, we believe that our ancestors are shaping our lives, whether or not we believe it literally, like there is a sense that history is alive in us and past, present and future um, coexist. And so that also, I think, is just part of, of who I am. At what point did you realize that you wanted this to be a book? Um, so that's kind of a funny story because I, you know, I, I was working on this for probably a decade, um, just kind of writing, doing a lot of research just for myself. You know, it started with sort of the journals that, um, I was writing, um, when I was in this period of, of, of deep depression and then coming out into the world and realizing, oh, I never, you know, you don't get a lot of African history in school. Even when I was in um, at international schools in Africa, we didn't really study a lot of African history. Um, and I never studied the Armenian genocide, for example. And so there was so little that I knew about those histories. And so then coming out into the world and realizing, no, I really need to understand these stories that have so shaped me and these forces that shaped my life and doing that research for myself. And I was doing that for, you know, about a decade just for myself. It was this kind of private project that I would just add to. And I had a folder on my computer and then, you know, somewhere along the line, I started writing a novel um, through which I was kind of fictionalizing some of the events of my life. Um, and I went into an MFA program, a low residency MFA program, thinking that the novel was what I was going to work on and that that was going to be, you know, hopefully a book that I would put out into the world. And I had a deadline coming up and the novel, it was really not working, I think in part because I was so involved in this private project. Um, and that was really where my energy was, but I was afraid of writing that or like turning that into a book. And I wanted to hide behind, you know, what I was doing with the fiction. Um, and it, it just wasn't coming together and I had a deadline and I felt like I couldn't send the pages, the pages that I had were so awful. And I felt like I can't send these 
as my submission. It's just too bad. And so then I went into the private project and I extracted, you know, a section of it and I edited it and shaped it um, and, and sent that instead. And my mentor was sort of like, yeah, this is what you need to write. Stop writing that novel. Maybe you'll write another novel after this, but this is clearly the story that you need to tell right now. And so that's sort of how, that's sort of how that came to be. Was that permission or that encouragement from your mentor exciting or frightening? Like, what is it like to, to turn fully to the project you've been keeping to the side? It was both. Um, it was both. It was exciting in that it was, um, it was giving me permission. You know, I loved this project, um, but I was, I was terrified of this project. And I think in her saying that there was something in it that it could be made into art, you know, and I was really struggling with my sense of myself as a writer uh, as well. You know, I was, um, at that time, um, in my thirties and it had taken me a really long time, although I've been a writer my whole life, um, to give myself permission to share that part of myself. And, and so that was already a struggle for me. And then the idea of, you know, the first thing I put out in the world being sort of a memoir like that, that seems terrifying to me too. And, and I think her saying, no, there is something there. And this story, like, this is something that, you know, I feel is very compelling and I want to help you shape like that was validating in some ways. Um, but I think especially because I had been so struggling with that novel. Um, and it was really scary because then, then, you know, it was like, okay, well, the idea is that ultimately what I'm working on here, I would try and put into the world. And so then I'm going to put this very private, personal, intimate story into the world. And that was scary, but but I think also, you know, I had very low expectations. So I think that was really helpful too. Like I, I didn't really have a sense, even as I was working on it. And even as like in the back of my head, I hoped, you know, coming out of the MFA project that, uh, or the MFA um, process that I would have a book. I still, it was very abstract to me. I, like I, I didn't have a lot of ambition in that way. And as you, how long did it take you to kind of work your way all the way through to being finished? Um, so after the decade of working on it, um, (laughs) um, then when I became sort of serious about, okay, let's see if I can shape this into, you know, a manuscript, um, that others would, would read, um, and not just for myself. Um, then it, it was about, I would say three years. Um, cause two in the MFA program and then one year kind of working on it by myself. And then there was some time with, you know, my agent, um, shaping it before it went out on submission. So, yeah. And what does it feel like to be done with this, this decade of creative and spiritual work, or do you feel done with it? I mean, it feels really good that the, you know, that the story is in the world and that I, um, I wrote something that, you know, has connected with people and that feels really good. I think it also is exciting to me that it isn't finished, you know, you know, like life keeps going on. And I think that practice that I had built 
um, is one that sustained me. And um, I was really glad to find that even after I published the book that, um, you know, as I, as I gained new information about the stories of my life, in part through the process of, of publishing the book and having conversations around the book, that I'm continuing to reckon with and wrestle with ongoing questions. Like these questions are ongoing. They're not closed. They're not answered. Um, Which ones still feel live to you now? I mean, pretty much all of that. I mean, the question of, I think the one question that I feel really grateful to have um, processed in a way that I feel, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's closed, but there is some clo- some sense of closure. It is the kind of immediate question that sort of launched the writing of the book, which was, you know, the either secret or lie that my stepmother revealed. And, and so deciding that I don't need to know the answer to it and that the answer doesn't really matter to me, like that felt like there was some closure. But the other bigger questions that I'm wrestling with, you know, the meaning of my mother's absence um, and how that has shaped me, um, who I am in the world, given my multiple identities um, and how I connect, like what does home mean for me? How, How do the places where my family are from belong to me and not? Like those are ongoing questions that I will, navigate and think about and um, learn more about for the rest of my life. I don't see those going away. And how, how do you relate to your father now? Or to your, to your memory of or idea of your father? Um, I think what has been really wonderful is that I have access now to so many more memories um, and like much more complexity in terms of our relationship in a really joyful, expansive way in terms of how I understand who he was in the world. And I think that that a lot of those were closed off for me because I was so insistent on this one story. Um, and And so getting to encounter him again through the writing of the book, but then also just in opening myself up um, to those memories, um, that that has been something really lovely because I feel in some ways I have been able to encounter him as he was again, as opposed to sort of the deity that I made of him. My curiosity is whether... um... Do you think that in your future writing, you are going to keep working through these, these questions and these stories that, that you've started to tell and to braid here? Or are you craving something totally different? <laughs> um, well, I am working on the novel now. Um, unlike the first one, it's not, um, it's not a place to put all of my fears of, of writing um, sort of my own story, which is what, why I think the, the first one that I was writing failed. Um, and, and it is, I mean, it's very much engaged with a lot of these questions, um, in terms of, you know, um, power and identity and agency and secrets and families and, you know, all of that complexity 
being from multiple cultures and places, like all of those things, I think are just so much part of my consciousness that they are showing up in the novel, but the story itself is not, is not my story. And it's, um, you know, it, it is fiction in this case, (laughs) the other one was not so much. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I do think no matter what I'm writing, those are questions that those are questions that I, that are just so present for me that they are going to turn up. Um, it is really nice to be writing something completely different. Um, but I, I have also been writing some essays that are more directly tied, um, to those questions. Um, yeah. And as I said, I think, I think that project in some ways will always be ongoing. Oh, there was something else I wanted to ask you that was picking up on um, something you said at the beginning where you said that this threshold, you felt it in your body first and that it came in the form of shaking, maybe among other things. Um, How, (laughs) forgive forgive maybe the weirdness of the question, but um, how did your body process the the writing like how is your how is your body now or how does this transition live in your body now if it started there yeah that, that's actually a great question I've been thinking about it a lot you know I feel like I used to walk around with a lot of tension I feel like there were parts of me that had really hardened and the shaking was sort of the release of that tension but in a very terrifying way an uncertain way um and um and, you know, the ways that that tension sort of showed up was, uh, for example, I used to grind my jaw a lot. Um, I had really bad headaches. Um, I actually had sort of a very mysterious um, uh, illness that was caused by inflammation that, that nobody could really sort out what was causing it. I, I had sort of chronic hives. Um, Mm. for a very long time that no one could really explain. And, you know, we did all of the allergy tests and nobody could really explain what was causing it. Um, and a lot of that is gone. I mean, so that's, that's sort of the, um, that's sort of my immediate answer to it. Of course, like in this last year with the pandemic and sort of the collective grief that, you know, many of us have been going through in this, um, kind of, uh, coming back in touch with isolation and what it means and all of those things. Like some of, some of that tension has shown up again, you know, the grinding of my jaw came back. Um, but I think what has changed too, is that I'm so much more aware. Like, I feel like I walked through the world carrying all of that tension, um, for so long. And I was really unaware of it. Um, until something like an outbreak of hives happened. Um, and then I would go to the dermatologist and be like, are you sure I'm not allergic to everything because how is this possible? And, you know, it, it really thinking about sort of how those things might've been related to my emotional life was not something that I was prepared to do. And I, so I think now just the awareness of my body and the ways that I carry tension and, and, um, and when I see it sort of, um, when I see it, uh, coming back, you know, thinking through ways to release it, uh, whether that's dancing or meditation or spending time with loved ones, but those are all things that, um, I don't know that I didn't 
really allow myself before. Hmm. Does writing feel like a part of that? Like one of the things that you do to, to take care of that energy? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, I think that's why the writing had such urgency for so many years, particularly coming out of that period. It was a way of committing to not returning there. Um, and I was processing a lot through the writing and, and that continues to be something that, you know, as I said, sort of sustains me. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.